Welcome to the Price Lab Podcast, a series focusing on digital humanities and how scholars got to where they are now. I'm Stuart Varner, the Managing Director of the Price Lab at Penn. So excited to be here with Jessica Marie Johnson from Johns Hopkins University. Happy to be here. Could you tell me a little bit about your intellectual background and your trajectory? What brought you to digital humanities? I come to digital humanities in a very non-traditional route. I have been involved in part of communities of radical women of color, queer folks of color, who were operating or had some kind of engagement online for the last decade or so. Uh, And so I came to thinking about digital content, digital media, and digital curation, uh, really through those communities and through a commitment and accountability to Black feminist thoughts. So a lot of the work that I've been interested in, and as far as the digital side of things, has been about how do histories of slavery and ideas about enslaved people, how is that actually manifesting like in a more broader public and looking at that through social media. So what are the ways people are talking about, for instance, histories of slavery, but also monuments, but also slave memorial projects, but also like the rights of descendants. Like all of these are really complicated conversations that academics get into, but like the general public also has its own idea about these different things. And we need to stay very, very closely engaged with how people are talking about it on the ground so that we can continue to contribute to that conversation and um, and help all of us kind of move forward in those in uh, more just directions. Just the, the idea of public humanities, public scholarship, I think that's a really interesting pathway for the digital humanities as it continues to evolve. And you've done some of that work yourself. And so I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit about when your experience doing public humanities, but also what humanists need to do to be better at it and what we need to do to be safer when we do it. So when I think of public humanities, I guess I should start there. I think of everything from op-eds to public projects to blog posts to also social media. I've been a big proponent of social media being understood as intellectual production, as scholarly work, as humanistic work, as people are theorizing and thinking about the world often in real time. So I am really excited about what is happening in DH slash public engagement, public humanities, and I'm really Uh, hopeful about where that goes. I think that makes us as particularly university-affiliated scholars incredibly attuned, hopefully, (laughs) in a good world, (laughs) attuned to the issues that are really present for the broader swaths of our community, the ways that larger questions of, say, something like slavery are also questions about monuments that are coming up or going down. And so all of that, uh, certainly digital humanities can play um, a significant role. In thinking about how we can be better at it, I think that one of the first things to remember for those of us who are university affiliated is that digital humanities are public facing. It means that the questions that we are asking each other and asking in journal articles or in our departments or even on university campuses, they're not always the same questions and imperatives that communities have. And so if we're thinking about the kind of projects we create, for instance, and we want to collaborate with community organizations, grassroots organizations, nonprofits, or just like our neighbors 
neighbors. We actually have to have some really honest and, and hard and open conversations about what those communities actually need and want and make sure that we're attuned to that. And sometimes that means we may not get to archive everything that we want and we may not get to the thing that we said we would do in the grant, we may not get to do because the community church that we're working with does not want to do that or doesn't find that useful. It also made me mean that we need to innovate in new ways about what we make a priority. If an organization finds that what they need as a priority is access to a server, then how do we actually build that into the architecture of our grants or architecture of our projects? So there's a lot of dynamism there that I think that we can be much, much better at. The project that I think actually does this really well is the Color Conventions project where they have like community standards and ethics that you have to opt into. They ask the people who they're collaborating with to really think seriously about what that collaboration means and what they want to get out of it. How we can be safer in doing this work that's a hard question. I think it looks different for everybody. I think, for instance, public engagement for graduate students looks very different from public engagement for tenure track faculty and those who are more tenured. I think that there's ways that we definitely need to make sure that we are educating ourselves about harm online, about surveillance, about professional development and the structures of the academy so that we have a sense of where our work fits into the broader work that we are being reviewed on and as well as the broader work that we're accountable to so that we can make educated choices about what kind of risks we want to take. I don't know if we're always training our graduate students, particularly ones doing digital or public-facing work, in that kind of way, but regardless of what risks they choose to make, they also need to know the broader lay of the land. So we have a lot of professional development work to do as well. I had the pleasure of just seeing you, <laughs> you know, speak, but you know, one of the things that I noticed is the kind of digital humanities you're pointing to is a digital humanities that has the ability to read digital code, look at tools as cultural products inside power structures. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you've learned by looking at technology that way and also what humanists need to learn so that they can be better at, at critiquing the technology we use. This is a huge, huge and important issue and one that we don't always do our best work at. <laughs> I do think it's really important to kind of think about the history of the tools that we are working with. What are the ways that if we look back, for instance, at sort of the origins of thinking about the internet, listservs, technology, that we end up at places that, that are about defense and the military industrial complex. And those are just sort of like the grounding foundational realities of, of the things that we're typing on. I also always sort of think about Moya Bailey's work and her reflections and her push to always think about what is actually the labor that is creating the devices that we use. If we took that seriously, <laughs> we started from that premise. We actually have to think about all of our technology and all of our digital practices as part and parcel of broader issues of structural violence, structural oppression, state violence, difference, labor, exploitation. And that doesn't mean that necessarily that we you know, divest from our Mac computers. I'm not even sure that that would be useful, but it does mean that our digital humanities needs to be attuned to that and think about, okay, so then what's the corrective? What is the way that we shift gears? What is the way that we thinking about our projects and our tools and our codes as creating a world in which these products don't have to be generated in that way? That means that we have a responsibility to try and think more ethically about all of our projects. 
I saw it a few months ago at the University of Maryland's conference called Intentionally Black, Intentionally Digital. The organizers did such a good job, and we just had a conversation about how we sort of hope that conference is a beginning point for a, a sort of new chapter in, in the way we talk about digital humanities. And what happens to digital humanities when we say, you know, it's intentionally black? You know, what, what do, how do black studies and digital humanities sort of meet there and what happens? Yeah, so one of the great things about Black Studies is that it has had, in its best forms, it has had an ethics and an accountability to Black life, which, as we know, is also about an ethics and accountability to, like, human life and to humanity. And so what thinking about Black Studies, Black theory, Black digital practice does in the context of digital humanities is that it makes us ask really hard questions about what are the projects that we're doing for, what are the ways that we are attuned to the communities of projects are supposed to be impacting or accountable to, and also what are the ways that the data itself, that we're not sort of replicating worse practices in transferring data from one body of work, like as a historian, I'm thinking of like slave ship registers, into another body of work, like a CSV or a database. And it doesn't mean, again, that we don't do that kind of digitizing. There's something really, really important about using the tools that we have to get at deeper, more detailed elements of, of Black life and culture. Black studies has always been attuned to computation, to design. So there has always been a drive for data, for information, with the idea, though, that having the information would make it more difficult for institutions to discriminate against um, people of African descent. So it's been a drive for data with a purpose. Black Studies adds that and deepens that same push within digital humanities. It asks digital humanities, okay, what is this data for? What are the ways that we're using it to create a more ethical and a more just world? Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. My big project is finishing up my book manuscript, which is with the University of Pennsylvania Press. It is a history of women of African descent who are moving between Senegal, the Caribbean, and ending up in New Orleans. So it is, uh, in a lot of ways, like a Black feminist history of the founding of New Orleans. I grew really, really interested in doing um, work around New Orleans and histories of slavery because, um, and I have an essay out on this, um, actually, with the same title, I feel like New Orleans is the center of the world. I will not be dissuaded in that. <laughs> so many U.S., Atlantic, Caribbean streams of thought actually flow through the history of New Orleans from Plessy versus Ferguson to um, the Koufax Massacre to African slave trade and to Louisiana Purchase, which is made the Deep South Cotton Empire possible. Um, so I was very, very interested as a historian in, in what role the Gulf South plays in broader histories of the U.S. But I'm also really interested in the ways that thinking about race and racial difference and its intersection with gender and sexuality happens on the ground in places like New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast in really rich and complicated, extremely complicated ways. Nothing is as it seems in New Orleans history and it does force us, or at least I think should force historians to think about the ways and the thing actually is as it seems anywhere <laughs> in the history of the of the United States in particular. We have a lot of assumptions about how things have been and how things will go that are on the ground actually probably proven a little bit murkier than we than we like to think that they are. So I like New Orleans. Um, I love New Orleans for that. And it's just the rich, beautiful, insurgent, 
amazingly black and fighting type of kind of place with a really fantastic organizing history. Black Coast Studies is always around. Me and Mark Anthony Neal are always in the lab, sort of cooking up new ideas for ways to kind of think about Black Coast Studies in the broader world. The Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania would like to thank Penn Libraries, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and our Price Lab fellows for their support in producing this podcast. To learn more about the work of the Price Lab, you can visit us at pricelab.sas.upenn.edu.